This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. In the cave with us tonight, we have Cerise Howard, Stuart Richards and Emma Westwood. Welcome, welcome. Hello. Hello, Hello. Sally. Hello. Hello, Sally. (laughs) So on tonight's show, we'll be discussing three pretty interesting films. One of them uh, being about their absolute exhaustion and pressures of motherhood with Tully. We'll also be looking at life on the verge of nuclear disaster in the visually intoxicating The Sacrifice, Andre uh, Tarkovsky, sorry, <laughs> final film, which has been recently restored and re-released. But first, we're looking at Love in an Abattoir in the Hungarian drama on Body and Soul. That's an Aerosmith song that never quite happened. Love in an abattoir. What a lost Living opportunity. As you're I know. being killed. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so On Body and Soul is director Il Daco Inieri's first feature film in 18 years and it is quite the comeback. It's won countless awards and was nominated at this year's Academy Awards for Best Foreign Language Film. It's set in a Budapest slaughterhouse um, where Maria, played by Alexandra Borby, begins work as the new quality control inspector. Her awkwardness is read as bitchiness by her co-workers, which is isolating her from their tight-knit community. However, the slaughterhouse CEO, Andre, played by Gizi Morchani, isn't so quick to judge her. By chance, Maria and Andre discover that they share the same dream every night. And as they begin to accept the strange coincidence, they try to recreate what happens in their shared subconscious. Um, Emma, what did you think of On Body and Soul? Oh, you're hitting with me. Yep. Yeah, straight All up. right, you know, I go... On Body and Soul, well, it really wears its um, heart on its sleeve, this film. I think it's quite explicit in the title, what everything's going, uh, what, e- what everything that's going on in this film, On Body and Soul, and it really plays with that corporeal and ethereal aspect of um, the storytelling um, straight off the bat in the title and through everything that we're watching. Um, Cerise, I have something. I have a bone to pick with you. You told me that this was So to speak? Yes. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, boom. You told me that Mm. this was not going to be confronting. It was incredibly confronting, (laughs) the abattoir (laughs) sequences. I got a... I'm I'm really quite nervous about this film from the girl who watches lots of... uh, Body horror. Horror films. Mm. And... um, But uh, I find that kind of animal slaughter really difficult and just oh, uh, mm, uh, mm. I think that was the reaction from you. Oh, no, it's okay. I almost turned it off, to be honest. There you yeah. go. Yep. Sally I almost, almost was like, I, I can't watch it. I think it was more, and it, but, this was incredibly poetic, but it was more the scene right at the start. We're hit with it right at the start where um, uh, a cow is being slaughtered and we have that pause, that moment where we're waiting for the gun to go off. Yeah. And we have that looking into this cow's, these beautiful big bovine eyes and we've just been presented also with the the lyrical beautiful deer scene right at the start of the film, which the deer is not that different from the cow, especially when you're looking into their eyes. And then that has the, the, you know, the parallels with the human eyes and this whole idea of eyes being the window to the soul. So it was really 
super confronting for me that. And that was part of no doubt the filmmakers, um, their, her objective to bring us right into this idea of body connected with soul. And that played out across the whole film in a number of ways, yeah. Sure, yeah. Um, I think there's a lot that's actually done very cleverly with the montage and those sequences because you do see less than certainly you could. It's not a continuous shot of a cow suffering. It just comes in and out of it and you see certain things, yes. I mean, yes, it is documentary footage. It was footage not shot for the film, but footage, of, you know, actual documentary footage of Abattoir going on to be incorporated within the narrative. So no cow was shot just for the purposes of making this film. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's real and it doesn't sugarcoat the reality of mm. what happens in um, what is actually probably one of the nicer slaughterhouses you could hope to find um, if you were such a person interested in touring in Eastern Europe's yeah, yeah, yeah. slaughterhouse circuit. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, it is confronting. Hey, Eastern Europe, I mean, this is... When, when, when they're making a romantic comedy, they... Um, they like the extremes, so the polar uh, dimensions to, to things. I mean, there's a very spiritual dimension to all of this film, very certainly, and a very magic realist um, slash surrealist dimension to it where this business of um, these two very disparate humans um, coming to realise that they're sharing a dream and that, that perhaps um, that might bring them together in the, the um, earthbound world as well. Um, which, which has certain forebears in cinema. I don't know if you all know this uh, film director, Henry Hathaway, but Peter Ibbotson, which Gary Cooper and no. I think um, and and Harding might have been her name, where they he was an architect who winds up imprisoned. They're in love, they're separated, but they meet each night in their dreams and it's hopelessly romantic and beautiful and no cows are harmed. <laughs> but it's... Um, <laughs> But this film somehow has that swooning romanticism, but also an extremely Eastern European sensibility, and which, mm -hmm. yes, I understand. This could be very jarring for a lot of people. I mean, I find it confronting too. I don't like seeing animals suffer. I eat meat, so I think it does me a bit of good once in a while to see this and know what it is that I am complicit in as I'm well. I'm the same as you. I'm a total hypocrite. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> But, um, I mean, I actually think this is a, a, a stunning accomplishment, this film. It's... it's um, uh, no one would see coming what, what happens and yet I think the film holds it together in a way. There's something very coherent about the extremely improbable um, narrative manoeuvres this film makes and that this filmmaker who hasn't made a, a feature for a long time, Ildiko um, uh, Enyedi, uh, she, she came to some fame for a film called My 20th Century mm. um, but, I haven't um, seen that. No, nor have I. Okay. I'm, I'm desperately keen to at this stage. Mm. Um, and it is accessible. It has been recently digitally restored. And um, But the, you know, talking of On Body and Soul, I, I saw this some time back and, um, and I was uh, just spellbound by it. I didn't see any of its plot devices coming, but to me they, they, made, they had a perfect internal logic to them. Mm. I think other people will probably disagree and if they do, they'll probably disagree really strongly and they'll go, what the fuck was that all about? <laughs> it's, but, it, it's interesting because the, the, the lead characters, the, 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 the lovers, for want of a better word, uh, they kind of walk around in a Valium haze for a lot mm. of the, the film, which can be a, a, something that happens a lot in Eastern European cinema anyway. But it was interesting because you don't kind of feel 
the passion from them or anything like that. But I think that that really plays out in this idea of the disconnect between the body and soul in this film. And it really all comes together very well in this idea of um, sexuality and especially sexual connection, being able to bring the body and soul together and bring, uh, you know, this, well, the, the lead character, the female lead is also, she has sort of autistic um, kind of chara- character and characteristics about her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, this idea is there's a, like a little bit of a disconnect between her physicality, her mind, what's going on and so forth. Um, it's interesting. They're both quite emotionally detached characters from their world and I did find that quite hard to engage with and follow. Um, and I don't want to labour the point about the cows because there's a lot more going on in this film other than the cows, yeah. but because a lot of that footage sort of happens in the first act, it kind of set me off guard a bit because, like Sally, I almost had to sort of stop watching it myself. Uh, I've seen a lot of that footage before through documentaries put out by Animals Australia. Um, Four Corners did that documentary on the live export trade where you see more sort of graphic material than what's mm-hmm. in this film. But when it's in the context of um, sort of an art film, it, it kind of set me off guard a bit because, yeah, my vegetarianism kind of <laughs> sort of got riled up. Um, but knowing now that that was from a documentary, I don't, had there been some kind of like sort of label or some kind of sort of information at the start that would have sort of put me in a better context for watching this film. But you almost wanted a trigger warning by the sounds of it. <laughs> I know, yeah. yeah, a content note. Um, I think I, I just assumed that, really, to be totally honest, with um, modern cinema, I'd hope that. Maybe I'm being too idealistic, but... I, I, I mean, um, at, like, dead animals have been used in, in films before and art yeah. before. Um, I'm thinking of Dark Mofo last year. They had that art exhibit um, which included the carcass of a cow. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't know. Um, and so that kind of did set me off mm, a bit. Mm. Um, but in saying that, it's such an evocative film in terms of the imagery. I mean, those scenes of the deer are so enchanting and intoxicating and you go into this dreamlike state when you're watching those deer scenes. Well, it, it was really interesting, I thought, because the, I felt that with all of that imagery, with the deer, with the cow, with the people imagery, mm. it was it was trying to say that we're, it's all the same, like what, we're all mm. the same. One thing I found like super, super interesting was the way, the, as the, I think it was the opening sequence, that we actually get a point of view from the cow, which I thought was incredible. And then the way that she's sort of played with shadows, because there's all, you know, that kind of stuff talking about in slaughterhouses, they never see the light of day, that when we see Maria for the first time, she's in the sun, but then she steps backwards into a shadow, mm. like all these animals in the slaughterhouse. Um, like I said before, I, all, I did almost turn this film off, but I am so grateful that I didn't. So to people that are listening, please don't be completely turned <laughs> off by the fact that we're going, it's horrible. It gets past it and it's worth it. It's such an incredibly beautiful movie. I absolutely adored this. I thought the two leads were just so enchanting and so kind and gentle and it was just so gorgeous. I think there's some really interesting ancillary characters too and when we're talking about the treatment of animals within this film, notably one of the key uh, extra characters is the head of human resources within this <laughs> abattoir <laughs> and this whole term human resources itself yeah. is one I've always found sinister. Yeah, and, it is, And it? he's yeah. A dreadful human being, a terribly misogynistic, 
um, sexist, uh, you know, constantly throw, making sexist jibes, and 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 of course we, we realise actually that um, he's uh, there's more to his characterisation and you know, his insecurity about his uh, masculinity comes from an interesting place. There's all these little developments teased out about creating something of a, a picture of the fabric of contemporary Hungarian society and, and European and more broadly just Western culture yes, and, yes, and yes. our hypocrisies and and um, the, 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 the facades that people put up and the vulnerability that some mm. people open themselves to and sometimes to lovely romantic results or other times the vulnerabilities that people smother in offensive behaviour. And I know which sort of behaviour I'd prefer <laughs> to welcome into my world. Yeah, well, it was it was interesting because there. Uh, I think that the the slaughterhouse, um, these people working in the slaughterhouse, they showed that whole disconnect of the really, you know, they could have been packing boxes, you know, it was just what they did, and until that there was a kind of, without giving the story away, a kind of bloodletting towards the end that really yes. brought everything sort of then came together, all the the different planes came into the one, let's let's say. It was interesting. Yeah. That, and that was queasy, yeah. that scene too. Yeah. Ooh, I felt yeah. that to be mm-hmm. very queasy. That mm. ending, obviously, don't want to give anything away, but for me, the decisions that are made in, in those final few scenes, I think undid a lot of the... this sort of... this romanticism that kind of connected the two. Really? Yeah, that completely See, I thought that was, undid it. I thought that was a really tight narrative structure there. Oh, no, didn't, I'll give just, the, yeah. the, the writer, she wrote it too? Um, wrote it yeah, I think she did. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give her a big tick for that. I think that was tied <laughs> up was in a beautiful, a, a, lovely, <laughs> yeah, neat, <laughs> a lovely neat bow. Was, yeah. was I the only one who found the film funny? No, there were parts that were funny. When she's listening to the CDs, that was great. Yeah, that's that's pretty hilarious. Yeah, there were definitely some very funny parts in it. Yes, and great musical choices, selections. Um, Yes, yeah. And her slowly trying to be human, really. Yeah, to learn how to get a phone and. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. The next film we're going to be looking at is the latest offering from Jason Reitman and writer Diablo Cody, who have bought us Juno and Young Adult in the past. So they've taken the next obvious step in their partnership and have moved their focus towards motherhood in Tully. Exhausted mum Marlowe, played by Charlize Theron, who is already struggling to handle two kids and begins to lose her tether after the birth of her third. Salvation arrives in the form of a night nurse, Tully, played by Mackenzie Davis. Tully is a sweet, bohemian 20-something who takes care of the baby when Marlo needs to catch up on sleep, and eventually Tully starts to take care of Marlo too. Marlo comes to form a unique a unique bond with the thoughtful, uh, surprising and sometimes challenging nanny, Tully. Um, Stewie, what did you think of Tully? I loved it. Mary um, Poppins. Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> With a bit of drinking. Um. <laughs> and exhaustion. <laughs> but enough about your Saturday nights, too. <laughs> 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 I did love it. I thought it was very funny. Uh, the Those really witty one-liners, um, 
uh, sort of that, that we, we, we get in Young Adult and Juno are there. Um, I think Charlize Theron is brilliant in how she goes from sort of happiness but also these moments of just pure exhaustion, which I really felt. Um, and Mackenzie Davis is great. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. I didn't see kind of the, the twist at the end, did not see that coming. And now I want to go watch it again to sort of see if there are any foreshadowing. Well, or... this is this is a, the surprise for me and I think the surprise is that there is a twist. Yeah, I didn't expect one. I thought no. there was going to be sort of this kind of coming to Jesus moment at the end where she kind of finds herself and, um, and yeah, I, that wasn't that. Um, no, no. I, I came to this um, thinking that I would see Juno version two. Yes. Really. Yeah. Um, and... Would have been quite okay with that. Mm. I, I enjoyed Juno. It's it's not as quite funky language as, as Juno. Juno was quite original at its time with mm. uh, with its dialogue. I think it's you know now been that sort of dialogue's been used in cinema quite a lot. But at the time, it was very mm. um, pithy and fast, especially yeah. fast and very quotable. And very quotable. This film. Um, yeah, I thought it was going to be Juno version two because the the the, the movement onto motherhood and so forth, uh, and I and it was um, really really surprising where it went, very surprising, and I think it played on um, this idea of motherhood. I want to say something, but it will no, it will give it away. So I'll tell you guys afterwards what someone called it <laughs> to me, which I thought was very, very funny. Uh, but, but it could have been a little bit cu- too cute, but it didn't seem to do that. It's still clear of that. Like for example, when they were going, Tully and Marlo were driving to New York on, you know, one night and they just, they just decide what the hell we're going to New York. We're going to have a drink in New York. Let's leave husband at home with the, Wish the baby I could do that. <laughs> and uh, the children. And they got in the car and they started. They were playing Sydney Cindy Lauper <laughs> tunes. And I felt that I just was readying myself for that idea of you know girls want to have fun just playing out. But instead, they did this kind of quick skip through the whole album, which I thought was a bit of fun and yeah, it wasn't well as twee as, yeah. as what it could be. And as you said about Charlize Theron, I mean, often she's playing robotic characters in this day and age. There's sort of, a, you know, completely alabaster, you know, perfect, um, uh, yeah, alien life. And this was so lovely to see her, which she, she is in these Jason Reitman films, the same with a young adult, which mm. was more of an embarrassing experience. But this is, um, she, she managed to impart that bone weariness of motherhood that I can only assume not being a mother, but it certainly, I felt it. I could sympathise with it. Mm. And I could sympathise with what I've seen friends go through. Um, and I realised I've dodged a bullet. I'm I'm also not a mother, um, surprisingly, and I I think sort of there's there's something resonating with this film that goes beyond motherhood for me, though. Um, It's about kind of growing up and looking back and seeing if you made the right decisions. Mm, Yes. Um, And do you have regrets or and sort of are you on the right track? And but grappling with change. Yeah. Just grappling with change. But also grappling with uh, a lack of change with with the same thing day in, day out. So there's some extremely Mm. elegant montage sequences in this film where we Mm. just get a sense of the real rigmarole of life with a newborn. 
and it, it's extremely adroitly done, just cutting uh, to alarm going off, um, infant being... Breastfed. I was looking for a, a, a more <laughs> elegant word, and I couldn't find it. Suckling. So, yes, yeah, suckling. Suckled. <laughs> suckled. Um, and uh, various apparatus being attached in the um, interests of milk manufacture. Yes. And... There's a great one-liner about being a milkmaker at one point in the film, and yeah. it's, it's, it's she Charlie Strong gets to deliver some great little one-liners in this, but they all feel authentic too. I felt actually they, they didn't felt no, very authentic. Nothing felt That's forced about yeah. this. Even this idea of a night nanny, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, I, I thought, does that mean what like a, a wet nurse? Yeah. Is that what that yeah. is? That's I thought that was gone in Victorian era. That's <laughs> creepy. And in fact, even this dynamic between the night nanny and her is made to be creepy at first. Yes. Yes, really it's creepy. Very, it's very intimate, yeah. shall we And say. I love that before the night nanny comes, she's watching this crappy reality television show called Jiggle. It looks awesome. <laughs> it does. It looks I was like, great, immediately, was like, how did I not know that's a thing? Yeah. Um, but then when um, Tully comes in, it's almost like sort of a gigolo kind of dynamics, like, you know, what are we going to do? It's up to you. And it's almost like them negotiating. Yes. No, you're so right. That's This beautiful. kind of like <laughs> sex work relationship. Maybe we should w- review an episode of Gigolos Gigolo. next week. <laughs> well, actually, my friend who went to this uh, screening with me knew Gigolos and said it's very disappointing. Oh. <laughs> so, guys, don't get your hopes up. <laughs> but um, I did like that the, the focus of this film wasn't it was on um, Marlowe's experiences. Yep. Um, Marlowe's interpersonal experiences, but not necessarily those with her husband, which often a film, if you're going to show uh, a woman um, not dealing very well with her motherhood, it's mm. going to be at the at the detriment of her relationship with her partner. But this was not like that. That, uh, yeah. that, And I thought that was a really good road to take. I thought it was really interesting the way that they put together the relationship with her husband because you do think that he is being helpful to a point, but he's just a real dead shit, isn't he, that just mm. sits up there and plays video games. Um, so it was kind of like that she had in her head that he was this very helpful guy where yeah. realistically he's not. I, overall, I didn't really like Tully... Tell us why, Sally. Why didn't you like it? I love Juno. I love Juno. I love their work that they've done together in the past. But this felt, it did feel really sickly sweet to me. And the ending of it, I hated. Like, it just made me want to roll my eyes all the way into the back of my head. Like, I didn't like, it didn't work for me. And I, I felt, I didn't feel for her whatsoever. I don't know if it's because I don't know why I don't have children. But it just, it wasn't there for me. It didn't work for me one bit. Oh, Sally, you're a monster. I know. <laughs> you're evil. You're evil, Sally. I, I actually felt that, see, Juno I, I enjoyed, yeah. but I didn't, this one was surprising. I felt that this surprised me more. I, I didn't was hoping see for where Juno it was too going. With this, and I didn't get it. Um, <laughs> I, I, the line where she says her body is like a map of war-torn Europe. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> good, yeah. Yes. And when her child says, I believe it's in the trailer, when her daughter says to her, what's happened to your body, mummy? <laughs> well, this, this is on, on this topic. I, mean, I think this has an awful lot more interesting things to say about body image for mm. women than I feel pretty, which yep, she talked about a fortnight ago. Yes. Which... Yep. 
because that whole film was supposed to be about that, whereas that yeah. is not exactly incidental to the film we're discussing now, but it's it's definitely really heavily in the mix. And it's about uh, losing losing your body, really. As it, a mother, your body becomes someone else's. But also not just as for a character, but for the star. And a lot of column inches have already been expended writing about, oh, Charlize Theron, so brave, showing a, a, a woman who's expected to be a beautiful actress always, the sort of character you described as before, almost alien in her beauty, I think, Emma. She did the same thing in Monster, though, didn't she? Well, she, yeah, she yeah. did, but the, uh, with different resonance. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that was... And she was not actually even recognisable. In, in, yeah. Whereas this is... You know it's her, it's definitely her, but mm. it, it plays up the changes to her body. I mean, it's, it's very visible on screen and meant to be, and I think we're actually supposed to marvel a little at this. Mm. Go, oh, look at this Hollywood star who's let herself go. Yeah. Which is, you know, of course, absurd, but the expectations are, of course, so high on mm. a, a woman of, as they say, a certain age in Hollywood. If she means to be cast in roles once she hits 40, <laughs> she needs to look after herself, <laughs> goes the conventional wisdom. And I like that Charlize is just given a bit of a two-fingered uh, flipping of the bird back at uh, folks for that. I, th I think, you know, she's so great in this film. Yeah, she has shown a lot of trust in uh, Diablo Cody as the writer and Jason Reitman as the director because um, young adult, anyone who's seen young adult will see something where she's quite stripped bear emotionally in a number of ways as the popular girl who then becomes um, humiliated, who never really uh, manages to transcend or go anywhere with her popularity from school. And that was quite, um, that was, uh, you know, quite interesting. So I think that in this film that you can see that the progression of that relationship and that mm. trust and it comes out for me. Maybe not Sally, but for me, it comes out on the screen. And uh, as a an an unmother, an unmother, a mother of fur babies um, who do keep me up at night occasionally. This, uh, yeah, this really resonated. I felt that especially at the start, before we have this beautiful, you know, um, this magnetic, gorgeous little uh, Tully come into the fold yeah. and take um, take care. It was you. You felt that. Haze that walking through, like being the living dead. Didn't walking you think through Tully life. was really irritating, though. Yeah, oh, she no, was so irritating. I get there's an irritating <laughs> edge to her, but I think that was meant on purpose too. Yeah, I think yeah. she was meant to irritate Marlo. She was meant to. That was the whole rub. She was meant to make Marlo go. Really, mm. you can be like this. Yeah, you know. And anyone who sees the film will uh, read more into that. I also like that um, the angle of sort of postnatal depression is there, but it's never named. No, it's um, never named. No. And because I was reading sort of interviews with David Cody, and and sort of that was sort of a deliberate sort of act because sort of this is so often undiagnosed that this occurs. Um, and I and I do like that angle to the film where there is this form of depression, but it's never named, and it's just she's just tired. Yeah, she's just tired. Yeah, yeah. she's she's um, she's comatose. Yeah, <laughs> but I also appreciate that the characters checked their own privilege once or twice and acknowledged that hey, you have to be wealthy to even be able to conceive of the idea of bringing in someone just to look after your infant yeah. at night with their dog called Prosecco. Prosecco yes, <laughs> Prosecco. 
I have a cat called Lulu. I can't complain. But <laughs> After Louise Brooks in Pandora's Box, I expect. But, yes? but we, no. we must say that her character isn't, they're not shown as, you know, upwardly mobile, wealthy individuals. Mm. It's, it's her brother who actually has yeah. the money and suggests, suggests that That's for true, her. but they're still yeah. pretty well off. Mm. I mean, that's a nice house from where I'm yeah, looking. Yeah, mm. yeah. Sure. They're doing all right. They it's have not a too house, bad. Like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. So next time we're going to look at Russian visionary filmmakers Andrei Tchaikovsky's final film, The Sacrifice, which has been restored and re-released. The Sacrifice is a haunting vision of a world threatened with nuclear annihilation. Um, while wealthy Swedish family celebrates the birthday of Alexander, played by Erlen Josephson, News of the outbreak of World War Three reaches their remote island and the evening turns to horror. The family descends into a state of psychological devastation. For Alexander, a philosopher troubled about man's lack of spirituality, the prospect of a of certain extension compels the, compels the ultimate sacrifice as he enters into a Faustian bargain with God to save his loved ones from the fear which grips them. Um, Cerise, do you want to kick this one off? Yeah, not really, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, think you should. Yeah, absolutely. I got agitated for uh, covering this film because it's um, yeah, it's a golden opportunity for folks to uh, see one of the the great image smiths work on a big screen in town. Um, but that, that a term like that doesn't do him justice uh, by any stretch. I mean, he made so few feature films, uh, only seven in a. a a glorious career and this film is actually the the final film of his oeuvre um, made in 1986 when he knew that he was suffering from terminal cancer and certainly he's grappled with the big questions and matters of life and death and especially faith in his previous films and if people think the name's familiar but they're not quite sure who this Tarkovsky guy is think uh, Solaris people might know the original uh, film adaptation of Solaris, extraordinary metaphysical sci-fi epic, or Stalker, which is a, a great favourite of mine. Um, or this, in this case, The Sacrifice, a film that's sort of a summation of his career and his interests, but also weirdly filtered through some a couple of very particular lenses. Uh, this film's in Swedish, which some people might not be expecting uh, a film, a, a Russian filmmaker's final film to be. But he, he'd left Russia at the start of the 1980s because uh, he was forever struggling to get his films made. He fell foul of the authorities there time and again. They took a very dim view of his interest in spiritual matters. The, the communists were not super keen on, uh, say, Andrei Rublev, his three-hour epic about a monk um, who paints icons. Uh, and then takes a vow of silence. Um, and, you know, that might sound like the makings of a great film, but um, <laughs> that is one of the most staggering experiences you can have in a cinema, Andre Rublev. <laughs> but so here we are in Sweden um, with uh, a lead actor who's very well known from a number of Ingmar Bergman's films, and Bergman was one of the directors Tarkovsky really admired. And there's um, a lot that's Bergman-esque about this film, not least that he also got Bergman's main cinematographer, Sven Nickvist, uh, mm. to do the uh, utterly mind-blowing uh, cinematography and, in this and, film. And Bergman's son, his camera assist as well. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of notables here. I mean, the whole yeah. film 
is a dedication. It's a last will and testament. It's it's dedicated to his son, um, but it's uh, there's so much there where he's acknowledging his forebears as well and Bergman key amongst them. So there's a lot in here that riffs off Bergman films like Shame, where a nuclear or some sort of you know, terrible war thing is breaking out all around um, Max von Sydow and um, uh, the actress who's especially identified with whose name escapes me embarrassingly very briefly, Liv Ullman perhaps. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, they're on an island and all mayhem is, is breaking loose all around them. Uh, but also chamber pieces. Bergman made a lot of really harrowing chamber pieces where families are falling apart, like uh, Cries and Whispers, where actually a main character there is dying of cancer. And there's, there's so many resonances with Tarkovsky's own films, but also Bergman's. But ultimately, I mean, I know, Stu, you were coming into this cold, not having seen any before, so this so might have all been a bit baffling. But for, for anybody... <laughs> Even if you've seen a few of his films or some of the other films that have informed his filmmaking, there's still a lot here that, for me, being a dreadful heathen, I struggle with the religious imagery. I know that's a Leonardo da Vinci painting we see regularly in this film, but I don't grasp its full significance. Uh, there's a whole lot of just God-bothering stuff throughout his films that I don't quite get, but I love the images and the atmosphere so much. And no one... No one has ever shot a puddle as gloriously <laughs> as well, the people Tarkovsky has had as cinematographers over the years. He's, he's the master of the meditative tracking shot and of mm. allowing actual time to seep into a shot such that by this film's close, you can scarcely believe that the camera hasn't blinked for quite some time and what is one of, well, it's got to be one of the top five closing shots in all of cinema. It is mind-blowing. That they had to do twice. Well, that, that, yeah. <laughs> and they only yeah. had one house. Yeah. So when people see it, you'll see what we yeah. mean. Staggering, <laughs> absolutely staggering. Yeah. Stu, I, I, I want the polar opposite. I think this is interesting because um, Cerise has provided it in because this is not a super accessible film. It's not. So it's good to have a point of accessibility. Yeah. But if what did you have before you went into this? Zero, which, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> which I'm quite embarrassed to admit because I do teach film. Um, so yeah, I hadn't ever seen a Tarkovsky film before um, and I'm very touched that you also admit there is a lot that you don't grasp with this film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes me feel good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, it took me a while to get into the headspace to watch this film. Um, for me, when I sort of watch slow cinema, I think you have to be... It's all headspace, though, yeah, you Stu. Ha- oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to be in the right headspace where you're sort of ready to sort of forget about sort of things outside the cinema theatre. You can just sit there and let it wash over you. And yeah. It took me a while to get into it, but it's that shot when they're watching the television and it's just the glow of the the TV screen, mm. and then I was like, right, we have arrived. This is this is sort of why I've heard sort of good things about this film. Um, it's so exquisitely shot. Um, after the sort of I saw the film, I sort of I was going to another party and um, well, a party, and because <laughs> <laughs> that was the big sacrifice party. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was just looking at some of the images on my phone and it's just so exquisitely shot. The burning house, various shots of the sort of all of the players in sort of the main room, um, kind of just sitting and posing with this sort of elegant costumes. Um, so, yeah, I didn't grasp the narrative a whole lot towards the end. I didn't really have any idea what was going on and I know I didn't fall asleep, um, but, yeah, sort of I did lose some of the intricacies of the plot towards the end. Um, but I love the way even 
when all of the players are sort of all the characters are moving about that main room um, and the way it's shot, like it's constantly breaking the 180 degree rule, I noticed. And when it sort of cuts to someone else, it's like an entirely new space, even though it's the same room. Um, and I love that. Mm. Um, yeah, it's so. It's, not, it's interesting that you notice the cuts because there's not a hell of a lot of them. Yeah, because when they do come, they're very, they're, they're very significant. Yeah, so when yeah. the um, the wife enters for the first time, that was just sort of a direct break of the 180 degree rule. Mm. Um, mm. I've just been teaching that at, <laughs> at, in class. So I was like in the back of my mind, I was like, ha ha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have an yeah. Example for class. <laughs> yeah, I think um, this is. Uh, interesting to do this film with on body and soul um on the same bill so to speak because um talking about that idea of the the body and the the um more metaphysical physical metaphysical this film really sits in the intellectual realm you really sit in your head in it i find that for me um there's absolutely no um doubt that it's a very accomplished film but um for me i like to feel a film in my loins i like to literally feel it in my body and have that response where i i sit in my head a lot in my my every day and really I need to get out of it a lot of the time. So this film does have you sit in your head. Like this opening shot, which is a very um, uh, wide, uh, long shot, so you, you can't actually see the characters' faces mm. and it's um, Alexander, our main main character, um, our existentialist of the film, and his son, Little Man, who is um, strangely a temporary mute. The mute plays a big role in cinema, not so much a big role in real life, but mm. always in cinema there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of mutes. And um, they're planting a, a tree and this is this very slow, as Cerise was saying in, um, in, in describing this film, this really, really, really slow tracking shot. Um, and it's essentially a, a monologue from Alexander until some another character comes into the scene. But um, I found it really hard because it's so about the, the monologue and just the, an, an intellectual d- discussion or internal discussion and I can't even recognise the characters and I'm not even close to the characters. I find it very distancing. But I always find that with um, films that have very long shots. And But it is beautifully constructed in the way that these... The camera often works very parallel to the action. This is a film that works in horizontal lines and this this tracking shot moves very slowly but converges very, very slowly until we get relatively close to the characters, not so much. But I felt that I wasn't... In some ways I couldn't physically recognise these characters. I could intellectually recognise them. It's a, it's a very unusual experience, but you don't physically recognise them except for a couple, except when you have Alexander doing his bargaining with God and he, the audience is posited at God. He's literally screaming at the audience. And um, Maria, another character who's quite a, um, plays a pivotal role in it, She's she gets to barrel the lens at one stage. Um, but otherwise you get, apart from that incredible uh, female hysterical scene, which probably probably comes only second to Isabella Jani in Possession, Possession, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't, it's very internalised and very constricted. I thought it was interesting you say that something that was not in your body. I felt that it very much was for me because it was very difficult to watch in a cinema where I'm, 
I'm there the entire time. I can't go anywhere else. Um, it was very frustrating to watch. Not that I, I very I enjoyed it. I thought it was excellent. But and of course that was his intention. That it was. I found it very hard work, and there was that constant fidgeting. Okay, I can't get up and go. I need to do. You know, and just watching him. You know, trying to light something on fire, and the match goes out, and everything was so long and drawn out. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. It was yeah, really good. Cool. I'm really glad that I saw it on the big screen. Did, did any of you get a big startle at any point? Because I, I find yes. that he manages to startle me, as in like a jump scare, mm. much better than any horror filmmaker because there are these extremely l- long takes and suddenly sometimes there's a sudden interruption, something invades the frame that wasn't mm. there. This, this the happened planes, with a number of his films. The planes were quite... Yeah. There's, um, the planes, the, planes, the, the, the yep, sound little effect. man as well. At one point. Yes, yeah. That, that, yeah. yeah, that's the one I'm especially mm-hmm. alluding oh, to. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, he's got an amazing knack for that. Mm-hmm. No, no one ever talks about Tarkovsky, the master of this jump scare. <laughs> but, <laughs> You're right, though. I never, yeah. Jump scares never get me no, in they never get films, me either. Ever, but but yeah. 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 but um, I, I found it actually hard to place the um, era of the film, like obviously in terms of nuclear... Um, Holocaust is a, a modern film and there was the ele- electronics and so forth, but the women's outfits seem like they were sort of turn of the century. But then what I know, I was wondering this too because yeah. the light switch on the lamp towards the end of the film yes. is very modern, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, and um, the, the and little flicker on there. And he played music. You did all notice that the house was actually impossible though, right? I mean, yeah. there's nothing about the architecture <laughs> yeah. of it. Everything yeah. is, there's a metaphysical space. It's not really a, a place. It's a, <laughs> it's a state of being. Yeah. Designed by David Lynch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you, you can see Tarkovsky's influence in so many other yeah. filmmakers and it's 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 in that dream logic but... Such a beautiful house. Mm. Well, stunning but also impossible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> it had spaces there. that yeah. couldn't... <laughs> Exist. Be a bit drafty. Mm. A little drafty. You do need to see Solaris, though, Stuart, after this. I think it's absolutely amazing that Hollywood decided to... to remake a Tarkovsky film. <laughs> it's probably one of the most interesting remakes uh, or the, 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 the Soderberg. idea. Who made that decision? Well, yeah, yeah. Soderbergh. George Clooney. Yeah, mm, Between yeah. them. Mm. So they must have, I, I, I would have liked to have been at those pitch meetings. Well, I think they went back went. to the source material, the Stanislav Lem story ah, to go, all right, let's, okay. we could do this. Let's in, bypass yeah. this crazy Russian filmmaker. Yeah, but Stalker, <laughs> I can't recommend seeing that yes. highly enough yes, on yeah. a big screen and just losing yourself in that. You've got to give three hours of yourself over to it, but it's so worth it, such a worthy investment of your time. Just sit still in the dark, shut up, turn your phone off and <laughs> let it wash over you and you'll come out of that a changed person. Mm. Is this Acme's just showing the stalker? Yeah, no, just, well, just sacrifice. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. what am I which saying? Is, which is, yeah, I know, yeah. but it's, it's, it is a bit annoying because the season that they've programmed around it is called Stalking Tarkovsky, which is sinister. And, yeah. But oh, it's, yeah. there are a lot of other films in that season that um, are either inspirational to Tarkovsky or after Tarkovsky. Mm, so people okay. like Lars von Trier and Melancholia, which he um, uh, dedicated to Tarkovsky. Mm, mm. Yeah. Which is a, a little my favourite von Trier's. But yeah, I do like that film too. Mm. So mm. The Sacrifice is screening now at Acme until May 20. So you've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3 Triple R with Cerise Howard, Stuart Richards, Richards Emma West, <laughs> and myself, Sally Christie. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.